0: Flip and it stays. Put a mustache on Ken and make believe he's the bad guy. Or sideburns and play he's the hero. It's fun pretending they're movie stars, isn't it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Quick curl Barbie and mod hair Ken dolls with their own accessories, each sold separately from Mattel. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 87, The Eye of the Beholder and The Jihad. From Star Trek, the animated series.
2: Welcome to the most beautiful episode ever of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion.
0: And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we take apart an episode or two of Star Trek, sifting through it for messages, morals, meanings, sometimes a good recipe, and occasionally buried treasure. Sadly, after the original series and more than halfway through the animated series, no recipes and no buried treasure, but hope does spring eternal.
2: This week, on this kind of ugly episode, we tackle the eye of the beholder and the jihad. And if you want to tackle episodes with us or say something about our episodes, you can contact us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. In all three places, the handle is Mission Log Pod, or you can call us 323 522 5641 You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And hey, Ken, you know, I think what we've been missing really, truly, is a recipe for plomake soup. So (laughs) uh, in in the search for recipes, hopefully we'll get there one day.
0: Yeah, maybe. Although, you know, you can pretty much scrape that soup up anywhere. Huh? (laughs) Right. (laughs) You can. If you're a (laughs) longtime listener to Mission Log, or if you're not, actually, funny how that works, this is the time in the show when John Champion takes on trivia. It's a segment I like to call... Ken zones out for three to five minutes. John?
2: (laughs) Well, here we go, Ken. Get comfortable. We are in the final two episodes of season one of Star Trek The Animated Series. The Jihad aired on January 12th, 1974, and we had to wait all the way until September to get new episodes. Now, if you were a kid at the time, you probably didn't notice because they were airing in reruns. Of course, um, when the option came back for more episodes, they only got picked up for six more shows. So, sadly, we're kind of ticking away at the the days until we wrap up the animated series. Sad right. to say,
0: I know I said I wasn't paying attention, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, welcome back so, so and welcome after, back to the show.
0: After this, there are only six more episodes of the animated series. That's it. That means there are only three more episodes of Mission Log covering the animated series.
2: I know, I that, know.
0: That means we are painfully close to the next generation, and and I don't mean painfully like it's going to be bad. Although you know, season one, season two, uh, roll <laughs> I mean, a
2: little dicey. Yeah. But we're
0: like we're we're getting very close to our Star Trek. Well, or my Star Trek anyway. Star Trek, it was it, it was the one think? for me. It was the one that yeah, I mean. It yeah. was the one that was my series. Yeah. Wow. Right. It, it, it's it, it's like the headlights
2: coming at you yeah, I down, should, a, down ma- a dark highway.
0: Maybe yeah. I should read ahead occasionally.
2: <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, I guess should. that's
0: what I'm saying. That's It's that, kind of nuts that we're that, that, we're that, uh, that, we're that close. Anyway, I'm going go to go back to... It has
2: flown by. It has flown by. But Yes, but I I, I bring up that trivia just to say that uh, Star Trek The Animated Series is only 22 episodes, yeah. which you would think would be one season, but officially it is not. There There are
0: two distinct seasons Sadly, season two very short. It's like uh, it's like part seven of Harry Potter, or or the last season of Mad Men, or oh, right. you know, yeah, all yeah. that crap that they're doing now. Sorry, I, I
2: hate it in modern TV the way they do that. Yeah, yeah this was not the case. No, no this was a but, different um, time
0: when uh, when Star Trek was once again on the chopping block.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. Now, um, here's a little bit of, uh, uh, I thought pretty interesting trivia. Um, if you watch the end of the original Star Trek TV series, very often you will see sound by Glenn Glenn sound. And uh, that was a very large uh, and a very prolific uh, sound production and sound editing facility. And uh, they did all kinds of stuff. They did a ton of TV back in the day. They did The Lucy Show. They did Mission Impossible. They did Star Trek. Uh, so as you see, kind of all in that family, uh, they were kind of the go-to source for sound. And a guy at Glen Glen named Douglas Goldstaff uh, is credited with creating a lot of the original sound effects on Star Trek, the original series. Now, go forward a few years, and um, nobody actually knows what happened to those original sound effects. And uh, you had people trying to track these down through Glen Glen. And uh, eventually they tracked down Douglas Goldstaff, who was working kind of on and off in uh, audio post-production for Little House on the Prairie, and uh, who else was working on Little House on the Prairie but Matt Jeffries, who designed Star Trek, the original series. So kind of cool there as well, another little connection. All of those original sound effects, uh, he said, Douglas Goldstaff said, oh, yeah, well, that all got sent up to some other post-production house in order to be used for Star Trek, the animated series. And I just found this all leading up to this one little uh, joke here that at the, at the end of the day, they finally tracked down all of those original sound effects elements at a facility called Horta Sound. So that is the place it did the audio post-production for sound effects for Star Trek, the animated series, using the original sound effects from Star Trek.
1: Cartoon number one, The Eye of the Beholder.
0: Act one. The Enterprise is orbiting Electra 7. Its mission? Find out the whereabouts or fate of a six-person science crew that was here doing... Something. Accessing the log of the abandoned ship Ariel, Captain Markle says, with three people missing, he's decided the other three, himself included, will beam to the planet's surface to find out what happened. Should he not come back, says the recorded Markel, be it known that... But Kirk doesn't want to hear it. He's apparently too upset that Markel or Markle or one of them broke the rules that he didn't follow the book. Because you know Kirk and rules and the book. They are for everyone else. Data on the planet is scant. Class M, earthy gravity, earthy air. It could support life, says Spock, but without more info, we couldn't possibly say what sort of life it does support. Spock says Eriks is running a full scan, but these people have been gone for over five weeks. There's no time for a full scan, says Kirk. They'll have to beam people down into the same unknown situation that led to the apparent disappearance of the other six people. McCoy says, it's a risk, but Kirk says, that's why we're here, Bones. Just before the ship's captain, the ship's first officer, and the ship's chief medical officer beam into whatever fate awaits them, Scotty says Eriks has found life readings, though... There are no huge clusters of life readings like a city or anything like that. K-thanks-bye. The three men beam down dangerously close to a boiling lake, which annoys McCoy, though that roaring, toothy sea serpent annoys them all a bit more. They chase it away with a few stuns from their phasers. Kirk tries to establish contact with the missing crew of the Ariel. In response, he gets a burst of static, though no voice response. Still, now they know which way to head. Away from the lake, through a desert... And right past, ah, heck, another kind of toothy, roaring monster thing. Stunning with phasers doesn't work this time, though. It absorbs the energy. Until they shoot it in the neck. The thing falls unconscious, which is good. But it falls on top of McCoy, which is bad. But they're able to free him, which is good. And now they continue on their way, which is... about what you'd expect. So this place is weird. Lots of different environments close together, and that last monster looked like something from a different planet. A specific something from a specific different planet. Kirk calls Scotty to see what else he's found out. Turns out there is a city of some sort, and it just happens to be in the direction they're headed. They come across a pond with pure water. Too pure in Spock's estimation. He thinks everything they've seen so far has been controlled, or even manufactured. They're talking it over, but... Uh Though more monsters, flying ones this time, though they're chased away not by phasers on stun, but by an invisible force field. Wait, that means, well, we'll have to find out after these giant pink tentacled space slugs let the three men go, and when we come back from commercial. Act 2. The giant pink tentacled space slugs, three of them have been carrying the three men for hours. They're headed to the city Scotty told them about earlier. Once there, the men are put in some sort of big holding pen. McCoy thinks they're being decontaminated. Spock says he's getting mental impressions of them, but no clear communication. They're telepathic, but Spock says their thoughts go so fast, he can only catch glimpses. The giant pink tentacled space slugs are as advanced ahead of humans, as humans are ahead of a colony of ants. Kirk says the weapons and tools they took should prove that the men are intelligent, but Spock says "Mm, not really. Could have been for safety like taking away a sharp object from a child. Or maybe they want to see how their toys work. Apparently decontaminated, the giant pink tentacled space slugs take the three men to a habitat for humanity, or human types anyway, passing a number of interstellar animal habitats along the way. Spock states the obvious, we're in a zoo. McCoy yells that he's no animal, though Kirk says, here, yes he is. Also he is everywhere else, but we're apparently not going to go into that right now. Hey, look! The missing people! They're all in the habitat, too! Well, three of them are. As for the first three... Well, Markel, Price, and Randolph couldn't get there in time for them. And Randolph's pretty sick. But all of their tools are gone, so McCoy cannot help her. Randolph's a her, by the way. So is Price. Not that it matters, just filling in the picture. And Markel's a him. And we're moving on. Markel says they've tried escape, but no dice. They've tried communicating, but no dice. All that produced was a quivering motion, which we'll find out soon, is laughter for the giant pink tentacled space slugs. By the way, says Markel, we're in a zoo. Bones needs his med kit if they're going to save Randolph. Spock suggests McCoy think about needing his medical kit really hard, and maybe the giant pink tentacled space slugs will bring it to him. Sounds sarcastic, but that really is his suggestion. And it sort of works. The giant pink tentacled space slugs sense his need and bring him food. So now they all concentrate on the medkit, and that does work. He gets what he needs and goes about healing Randolph. While the giant pink tentacled space slugs seem benevolent, Kirk wants out. And as long as they're alive, there's a chance. Spock doesn't think so. We're in here for life, man. Deal with that. Act 3. Hey, Vulcan, says Price, aren't you telepathic? Can't you, like, mind-talk to these guys or something? Yeah, they're really advanced. All I've been able to pick up is we scare the kids, and the females think we're ugly. Bones is worried that Scotty might beam down a fighting force to save Kirk, Spock, and himself. They will be decimated. But Kirk says not to worry about that, since he gave strict orders not to save them should anything go wrong. Spock says that was a good idea. McCoy is strangely silent on the subject. Hey, says Spock. Remember how we all thought one thing at the giant pink tentacled space slugs earlier and got that one thing? Let's do that again. Kirk will play sick. The rest will think that they need a communicator to make him better. If they get it, they'll radio the Enterprise to beam them out. And places everybody. And action. It works. But they pick up that the humans are up to something. Kirk calls for the beam up. The little giant pink tentacled space slug child had handed Kirk the communicator. The sudden change in Kirk's demeanor makes him realize he shouldn't have done that. He takes the communicator back, but Scotty is locked onto it. He beams the giant pink tentacled space slug child to the Enterprise. On the planet, the giant pink tentacled space slug adults are upset. They think Kirk has hurt their child, and now they're pounding his head telepathically, wanting to know what happened to the kid. Spock says the force of their thoughts could drive Kirk mad. Aboard the Enterprise, Scotty is trying to communicate with the giant pink tentacled space-slug child. That may not be going well, though. The kid takes control of the Enterprise and sends it careening. Planet side, the aliens are mounting a multi-minded attack on Kirk's mind. The humans form a thought screen to protect Kirk. It's not clear that that's working, though the mental beating stops when Scotty beams into the habitat with the giant pink tentacled space-slug child or really the giant pink tentacled space slug child beams in with Scotty. He's learned a lot. The child is six years old and wicked smart. It accessed the Enterprise computers, absorbed all of their information, then played a little rough with the Enterprise. Luckily, though, Scotty was able to convince it to bring the ship back and beam back down to the planet. Now it's telling its parents about the Federation, and the giant pink tentacled space slugs understand the humans. They're just like the giant pink tentacled space slugs, except... Not pink and no tentacles. But they're like they were thousands of years ago. Thousands of centuries ago, actually. They're growing. They're evolving. So the giant pink tentacled space slugs will let them do that. But stop in and see us again. In 20 or 30 centuries. The end.
2: And the moral of that story is we are all evolving into giant tentacle pink space slugs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> looking forward to it. Personally, I might I might forego becoming a robot. Why <laughs> Just
2: skip that.
0: If I can have and an arm straight like
2: to going yeah.
0: out of my face so I can pick stuff up and, you know, scoot around everywhere. Eh, right, nah, right. I'm going to be I'm going to be a robot. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so I think they would have to eat a lot, too.
0: Um, well, we don't really know. There's a lot that we don't know about these guys. Right, right. We got 20 or 30 of their centuries to figure it out, I suppose.
2: Yeah. I can tell you this, that the episode was written by David Harmon and uh, he was credited on the original series with the deadly years and a piece of the action. I, I like a little throwback to the line. That's why we're here. See, also risk is our business, um, yeah. even though David Harmon did not write Return to Tomorrow. But
0: uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was it was a little sing songy. Mm-hmm. It was almost like Kirk was tired of telling Bones, <laughs> right. you know, like, that's right. why we're here, Bones, you know, <laughs> every time with you. Okay.
2: So we we hit on it in your synopsis there. Uh, Tom Markle beamed down his entire crew. Yeah. And then Kirk gets indignant about following the book because, you yeah. know, that's what you have to do.
0: <laughs> that's if what you're a captain
2: what the, of a starship. That's
0: what you have to do if you're the captain <laughs> Not, of a starship, says Kirk. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, right. Be. Yeah. Do, do you think? I mean, if the tables have been turned here, and every somehow all four hundred and thirty crew members of the Enterprise have beamed down, and Kirk finds himself alone on the Enterprise, like, well, I guess I better go down there after them and leave the ship abandoned.
0: Yes, we know he would do that because yeah. um, because he did that in the Spore episode. Oh yeah, of course. What was of the Spore episode? Did. I can't remember.
2: I I literally literally
0: cannot remember the name of that episode. (laughs) I may finally be starting to block the name of that episode from my head. Yeah, I I remember he's walking around with his Samsonite luggage at the end of the episode. Like like Carol Burnett at the end of one of her shows, mopping up Mm -hmm. the stage floor, right? He's going Mm -hmm. around shutting everything down. Uh, Eventually, the Enterprise will probably burn up in uh, orbit around the uh, Spore planet in the episode, um, the name of which I forget. I'll (laughs) tell you what I didn't forget, though. Uh But Uh McCoy did so uh, spock and mccoy get into it about the water on the alien planet right
2: yeah yeah
0: and spock's like "Eh, i want to test that water and mccoy's like nah it's fine (laughs) and spock's (laughs) like "Eh, it's too pure and mccoy says it tastes fine are you kidding me did did he not see wink of an eye did he not see the uh not the man trap what was the one with the salt vampire yeah the man uh, man man trap trap. yes did he not see the man trap you don't eat things that you find on the ground you don't just walk up and drink the water you don't do those things but you know
2: no no apparently you do do those things because that's how you
0: start off an episode right scratch
2: somebody's got to taste something
0: you don't do those things (laughs) that's right i forgot this is mccoy we're talking about here yeah yeah and starfleet day
2: two They just tell you to taste everything.
0: Exactly. exactly.
2: When in doubt, doubt, just put it in your mouth.
0: Put your lips on it. (laughs) And honestly, that has served Kirk pretty well in a number of ways. Yo! oh, hey, uh, speaking of that uh, momentary sexism and ageism in this episode, I'm just going to go ahead and, and name it and get it out of the way. And people okay. are going to say that I'm overreacting. But uh, we did this actually in the cage as well. When we said, you know, they did like 15 seconds of Pike in hell. And and I personally thought that that was sort of like a mind blowing moment because yeah. the Talosian yeah. comes back and says, I just named characters and an old episode. By the way, a very good. Uh, the Talosian comes back and says, "A, a child, I made a, a story that you heard, you know, mm. in your childhood or in your ancient history or something like that." Mm. And and that was sort of a big fifteen seconds, but it was only fifteen seconds. We right. get the same thing here. Uh, Spock says that you know they scare the children and and that the women find them ugly. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and this is obviously meant to show that the people are like, you know, snakes or bugs or other zoo animals or something like that to the giant pink tentacled things, right? Uh, but it is also sexist, um, you know, and a tiny bit ageist, like I say, children frighten easily, which, yeah, okay, I can go ahead and forgive that one because they're underage. But uh, women will say, ew, gross, when confronted right, by right. something like this, right? Implication is that only men can deal with this kind of thing. Now, I don't think anybody sat down to write that, but it's just, right. I mean, this is one of those things where you kind of have to, you know, uh, put a pin in it and say, okay, we need to quit saying that. We're so used to saying stuff like that. Oh, you know, girls don't like tech. Girls don't like bugs. Girls yeah, yeah. don't like a lot of things, right? And we're just, we're, we're not even uh, examining that possibility. We're just saying, oh, yeah, well, no, uh, uh the kid is afraid. uh The woman thinks we're gross, but the guy's cool. Right. And, and, you know, right. that's, that's, uh, you know, we still say things like that today. And yeah, and I think we're yeah. better about not saying it today, or at least some of us are better about not saying it today than we used to be. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it's worth mentioning for probably about that long.
2: Well, I mean, I, I'll say this. I think just from the writer's perspective, they took the easy way out. Yeah. You know, they, they did all of this in shorthand again, which we, we've seen on Star Trek before. They did it all in shorthand just to say, here, here's how – the reaction occurs so that we as the audience can kind of wrap our minds around this is what it's like to be on the opposite side of the zoo cage now that juvenile though um the
0: the the younger hold on you can't you can't just let him off the hook for taking the shorthand though because there are plenty of things that we've said as shorthand in the past that we would never say today for fear of being beaten by other people or because it's just wrong i mean there are a number of reasons that we don't use a lot of the shorthand that we used to Go back and watch uh, a lot of the short films during and immediately after World War II. And you can say, well, that was a different time because we were fighting a certain race of people. And you're not wrong about that. Yeah. But you don't keep using that shorthand once you realize, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have.
2: No, no, I I agree. And I didn't mean to excuse it. I I just think that it is sort of a – it is a lazy way of trying to paint a picture um, uh, okay, but,
0: uh, on this yeah. weekend, agree, yes.
2: yes, yeah, yeah, um but you know with the the juvenile the the young lactrin, mm-hmm. uh, even though they say that they are afraid, this one that we get to know a little bit is very curious, mm-hmm. so he does go through the steps of interacting um, it 's kind of an interesting cage in this case that the the lactrons just have access to their tools and can go in there and
0: interact with them um well the 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 tools were outside of the cage
2: right and that's what i mean it's sort of like if we were visiting the monkey house at the zoo and all of the (laughs) monkeys tools were outside and we're like oh here here you go
0: it's kind of like feeding the ducks but you know if the ducks had tools
2: yeah right yeah (laughs) exactly yeah But it took Scotty an incredibly short period of time to let that young Lactron not only read their records, uh, but also convince it of their intentions and get back to the planet uh, after getting controlling the Enterprise and get beamed down. Scotty should have been in the landing party from the beginning. He could have solved
0: the whole thing in 10 seconds. Do you think it was the accent?
2: Maybe it was. (laughs) Do you think the lecterns were like,
0: oh, I understand him. You you people I don't get, but – Right? Ah, This one. Yeah, yeah that was a little weird. It was That's it was nice. kind of odd. I mean, and I guess I mean, what, would you, what would you think that that is? Would that be that? the? Hmm. I hadn't thought about this before you brought that up. But I mean, mm-hmm. is it possible that the child does not have the preconceived, you know, ideas about anybody other than himself? Like the adults are looking at them like animals, right? And they're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, well, they're animals. And so even though they try to communicate with them, it's like, you know, well, it's like when a monkey tries to communicate with me. Maybe. I don't know because I'm not reading that as communication, right? I'm looking at the monkey as something that is not nearly as advanced as I am. Right, right. A child, on the other hand, might look at them and go, hey, what's this about? I mean, like you said, you know, the curiosity thing. Yeah. It's quite possible that a child would actually be open, or this child anyway, would actually be open to communication with another race because it's not, it doesn't have however many tens of years, 20s of years, hundreds of years of preconceived notions about what is worth communicating with as opposed to what's not.
2: Or, or terrified, because I, I think mm. now if, if I were, uh, you know, an eight-year-old in front of uh, the monkey cage at the zoo, and then suddenly I were transported to a rainforest full of nothing but other monkeys, I would probably be absolutely terrified
0: and run away. Okay, yeah, but then would, would that terror lead to your being able to communicate more clearly?
2: No, definitely not.
0: Yeah, so I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think this one was actually terrified. I mean, maybe, yeah. although Spock did read it as terrified – Uh, Well, frightened, but it was, but it was curious as well. Nah, I, I, I'd be willing to say that maybe that's a, maybe that's a lesson about not, you know, going by preconceived notions. Maybe, maybe. Well,
2: I'm saying, so whatever Scotty did to get it to communicate with the ship's computers, good on him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that uh, really good.
0: So if you're ever caught by aliens, try a questionable Scottish accent and see if that works.
2: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought this episode was just very straightforward, and I felt like we've kind of done this all before uh, Mm -hmm. with the cage and maybe more importantly with Devil in the Dark. Um, we know from the cage that we don't like being in cages. <laughs> we know that's a bad thing. Um, but from Devil in the Dark, we know that sometimes we just lack understanding because of the limits of our communication. You know, we, we start sort of intellectualizing uh, a situation rather than relying on empathy. And um, that's the, the understanding they had to come to here is that, oh, you are intelligent creatures. Therefore, we understand that what we're doing to you has an impact. And here, be free. We'll, we'll let you go and live. And that, that's what we did with Devil in the Dark. We, we tried to come up with a, an amenable way for everybody to coexist.
0: I wonder um, if they would have done the same thing with uh, the Klingons or the Ferengi or somebody mm. like that. Because, I mean, what they actually say is, oh, well, you're dumb, but you're getting smarter hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go ahead and let you go and get smarter. If they had come across somebody, and I'm not saying the Klingons are incapable of evolving or the Ferengi were incapable of evolving or anything like that. But right. if they had come across somebody, uh, let's say, let's say, well, I don't know, let's say the score back in the day. And we'll learn mm-hmm. more about them later. They'd right. come across them when they were just like, you know, belligerent, you know, warring race of people. Right. Or, you know, bird people or whatever. Would they have gone ahead and let them go or would they have like studied them and said, "Okay, well, there's really not much more that's going to happen with you except for killing. So we're going to go ahead and keep you in the cage. I mean, was it was it just intelligence or wasn't intelligence, you know, as they understand it, rudimentary, though it may be? Because the thing that really turned them on, it didn't seem to was the fact that they were smart, but the fact that they were like them a long time ago. I mean, and not physically necessarily, but that they were going to evolve into something greater, which they could tell based on the fact that they were working together as a federation of planets and based on what they had read in the computers
2: sure sure well and and they didn't fight back violently i mean i think that's the important thing you know put a klingon in a cage and i, I think you're gonna have a problem no
0: matter what um it's only because they snuck up on them that they didn't fight violently I mean, yeah, I yeah. mean, phasers on stun became like a boring line in this episode because we heard <laughs> you know, it. Right. We heard it three times. Also, go yeah. for the neck if you're if you're fighting something. Go for the neck.
2: Go for the neck. Um,
0: yeah. I did like uh, there was one. There was one object lesson here that I kind of liked, and it was short, as a lot of the lessons in the cartoon seem to be. Um, mm-hmm. So the the big scary the second big scary monster mm-hmm. uh, falls on top of McCoy, mm-hmm. and they go to try to push the monster off of McCoy. And it's too heavy. They can't push the monster off of McCoy. And so Spock says, well, we can't move him off of McCoy. So why don't we dig under McCoy and get him out? Mm -hmm. I like it's sort of the quick, you know, hey, kids, (laughs) let's take 30 seconds (laughs) to say if you got a problem and you can't fix it, maybe there's another way to fix it. As opposed to if you got a problem and you can't fix it, say goodbye to your friend.
2: (laughs) Right, Right. Well, I hope they dug fast.
0: Yeah, no kidding. It took (laughs) a while. It took a long time of like, honestly, Spock is smart enough. And and I I think it may have actually been to illustrate thinking about things in a different way, because Spock is smart enough to know that that is too heavy for the two of them to pick up. Right. right. (laughs) He should have started (laughs) by digging McCoy out. Uh, But yeah, good thing they, they got to him in time.
2: There's another thing in this episode that is sort of like old home week for uh, Star Trek morals, meanings, and messages. You know, one more time here, we have an example of a superior race that really doesn't want anything to do with us except for this (laughs) – You know, this brief moment of having us in a cage. You're like, oh, okay, well, you're smart enough that we should leave you alone. Um, But really, after this, we we just don't want to see you again for another 20 to 30 centuries, however long that may be in their time. And um,
0: We will will leave you alone if you would do us the favor of leaving us alone. You just don't come back. That would be awesome.
2: And I thought it was kind of... um, a good overarching message for Star Trek that uh, that we're, they're pretty insignificant and underdeveloped. Yeah. You know, it, it keeps us from getting an ego. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you look at the vastness of the galaxy, much less the universe, but, but just our own galaxy, that we're, we're pretty tiny.
0: I, and I guess that is one of the cool things is, I mean, the message every time, every time some race says, just don't talk to me for like yeah. 5,000 years. I mean, right. I, 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 the underlying message is, well, I'm not sure if it's the underlying, okay, there are two messages competing. One is you are going to be awesome one day. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other message competing is you're really not that awesome right now. Yeah, right. right? But you're going to get better. So it's okay, but I'm really not going to talk to you while you're getting better. I'm going to wait until you're, you're done. I'm going to wait until you're cooked.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Before I but try it... this again.
2: But I, I just – I love that Kirk ends it with um, – w- when they're questioning well, w- what happens in 20 or 30 centuries when humanity goes back to this planet. Kirk's like, yeah, not our problem.
0: Yeah, don't worry. We'll be dead. <laughs> don't worry about it. We'll be so dead <laughs> at that point. It's not a big yeah. deal. I got to so, yeah, say
2: – You might want to leave a note or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know.
0: Right. I got to say really quickly, one thing that I meant to mention earlier, I'm pretty sure Markle, Markel, Markel, mm. Markle, Markle. whichever, is a, uh, is a bad scientist.
2: Oh, in, in how many ways? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, one in particular. So he gets captured. He lives for five or six weeks among you know these things, mm-hmm. and uh, you know gets time to study them. And then mm-hmm. Spock comes and ends up teaching him a whole lot more about it. And then and then uh, uh, Scotty is able to communicate with one and actually get it to do what it wants to do. And then they find out that oh yeah, they used to be like this, but now they're like this, and we're going to be like that someday. And this is going to be awesome. And Markel's like, we didn't learn anything.
2: I know. Right. Right.
0: I learned more than Markel learned on that trip.
2: Yeah. And I only had
0: 24 minutes.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. He should not be the head of a scientific expedition ever again.
1: Get ready, kids. There's a fight brewing when Mission Log continues right after this. Log, Stardate 5122-6 on a mission to Gamma-6. Spock, Bones, Scotty and I beamed down, not knowing what to expect. We approached the idol. Its jaws were moving. Suddenly, five Lilliputians appeared, each attached to the other. The aliens placed themselves in front of the idol. Strange animals tried to grab us bones was trapped in a man-eating plant suddenly the floor gave way i was in the cave the lilliputians were friendly mission to gamma six was a success and now back to mission log cartoon number two the jihad
2: 1. Kirk and Spock are invited by a Vidalin to join a motley crew of aliens on a top-secret mission. Every one of them, aliens and humans alike, have very special skills that will be put to the test. It's a dangerous mission, but as Kirk might say, risk is their business. The mission is this. A bird-like race, the score, had their ancient leader's consciousness stolen. You with me so far? Char, who just happens to be the prince of the score, is on a mission to find it. Otherwise, once his people find out, they will launch a galaxy-wide holy war to recover it, and this whole thing will not go nicely. They breed armies, and they will stop at nothing. Also along for the hunt are Lara, a tracker, Sword, kind of like a Gorn, but with a better personality, and M3 Green, a coward, Well, he's a coward who is good with things like picking locks. The group are transported to a barren planet of great geological and environmental upheaval. Nothing seems to work right, but they have a vehicle and weapons, and Char takes to the sky to try to find the missing artifact. Char spots a building at a distance that must contain Alar's soul. Just then, the others notice a lava flow bearing down on their vehicle. Act 2. Kirk has a bright idea they'll rig their vehicle to go a little faster. Well, there's more to it than that. Spock tells M3 Green what to do. He's fast with his six arms, while Kirk, Sword, and Lara try to create enough of a rock slide to hold back the lava. They do so just enough that they can all get away in the vehicle. Spock actually gets ejected at one moment. There's one of today's lessons, always wear a seatbelt, and Kirk goes after him. All are safe, just barely, and Kirk tells Spock that the risk is worth it because the group will need his expertise. And after all, he needs a science officer. The environment changes again, quickly. Now it's icy and windy and our group is on foot. M3 Green loses his footing when the ground under him cracks open. Kirk and Spock save him, but he just wants to be left behind. No way, not on this mission. And S.W.O.R.D. actually carries him for a while. They all finally make it to the building where they hope to find the sculpture with Alar's soul in it, and M3 Green goes to work picking that lock. Act 3. Did I mention that the lock was booby-trapped? While M is dealing with that, a handful of vicious mechanical flying creatures show up to wreak havoc on the group. A few manage to get shot down, but Chara's wrapped in flying combat with the final one. When the door opens, the group decide to enter, assuming Char will catch up with them once he's done with that winged animatronic. Inside the building, the door closes behind the group. There's no lock M can pick from this side. Also, Kirk drops a little nugget on the group. He's pretty sure there's a saboteur among them. Why? Well, three previous groups all failed to get this far, and there are no living things on this planet. Only the contracted booby traps. And... Well, that's about it. But Spock agrees. Definitely. A saboteur among them. No use talking about it, though. They've got a wall to climb and a soul to save. Midway up the wall, an energy beam blasts out of nowhere toward the group. Kirk puts it together. Well, duh. It's Char, who has the ability to fly nearly a thousand feet up toward the soul of Alar. But what is his motivation? Doing his best Blofeld impression, Char decides to tell Kirk exactly what his plan is. By stealing Alar's consciousness, he will instigate a holy war that will give his people purpose, as well as rule of the galaxy. Char is perfectly okay with dying a noble death if it means his people will have the glory of fighting again. Char turns off the gravity in the building in order to have a fair fight and Kirk and Spock accept the challenge. It's a magnificent, glorious battle for about three seconds. They grab Char's wings and Lara radios the Vidala to be removed from this terrible planet along with the soul of Alar. Char is in a cage, he's mentally ill, and he will be helped somehow to subside the part of him that is all conquery. The whole mission was top secret. And to ensure that no one will ask, the Vidalin has Kirk and Spock beamed back to the Enterprise a mere two minutes after they left. Sulu is shocked, but there are no questions. According to Kirk, the danger is past.
0: I gotta say, for people who are not watching this mm-hmm. episode, or these episodes, the cartoon episodes, but just listening, yeah, it really is worth um, watching just the part where the Vidalin does something <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah because she's got like this really cool voice she's like very nice and then all of a sudden she like waves her arms and does this giant growl and i i really thought she was about to attack everybody there I, the first I, time I that so happened and then every other too. time it happened it just made me laugh yeah <laughs> it's just like it's like if you started you know if you screamed it, it's almost like dealing with somebody and this is not funny because i know people have this but it was almost like dealing with somebody with tourette's yeah, because yeah, you know, she's like, like a chick yeah. standing there. She's being very nice. And then she's like, you know, about to lunge at you. And then she's right. saying there, being very nice again.
2: Well, see, I kind of made fun a few weeks ago or a few episodes ago of Moresse that that it's Majel doing that voice. But then she'll just do the purr and then do it constantly yeah. a, as if just to show you once and for all that Moresse is a feline being. Yeah. And I felt the same thing with this. It's like we already see that the Vidalin is alien. And it's like just to just to punctuate it, <laughs> it's like she can control everything she's saying up to a point and then just lets out with this massive roar. Yeah. And you, like- you'd think that in polite society, just be, hey, can you can you just not do
0: that? <laughs> Dial that back. A for, notch. A <laughs> just, just for a you're moment. Because you're scaring the children and the women find you repulsive. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. right. <laughs> we can take it. Don't worry. But, you know, yeah. Anyway, uh,
2: this episode was written by Stephen Candel, uh, Candel, who we discussed before with Mud's Passion, and he did the original series Mud episodes. Um, he said that he had wanted to use a similar story to this to, to the Jihad on other shows, but he was never given the freedom to drop in messages the way he was with Star Trek, um, and he uses a similar format here to Mission Impossible for which he also wrote. Of course, they were just around the corner from the Star Trek studios at the time, so uh, he kind of did double duty there. Um you may have noticed or you may have not noticed that uh, David Gerald does the voice of M3 Green. He says that he just wanted to get a SAG card, so he asked if he could do a voice.
0: So um- he did that voice. Sorry. I know you live uh, in Hollywood, but for people who don't know what a SAG card is.
2: Oh, yes, yeah, Sorry. The Screen Actors Guild, that would be the union for actors, which has many wonderful perks if you are lucky enough to become a member. Right. Um, okay. But it, it's tough. It's very hard to get a SAG card and it can be very difficult to maintain. So good on David for getting that. Um Now, we have two female voices in this. We have Lara, the tracker, Mm -hmm. and we have the Vidalin with her uh, angry (laughs) cat-like roar. You may have thought that it would be either Nichelle or Majel doing one of those two voices. And nobody could fault you if you thought that. But you would be wrong because this week both female voices are done by Jane Webb. Really? And wait a minute. Did,
0: yeah. Wait, wait a minute. The Vidalin was not Majel? The Vidalin was all Jane Webb. I did not know that. I, yeah, I, it, I could tell that Lara wasn't either of those women, but I thought right. – Interesting. Okay. Yeah, Sorry about yeah. that. It,
2: it is incorrectly reported in some places that it was Majel, but it was not. Um, Jane Webb did a ton of voices. I mean a lot of voices, but I found this to be very entertaining – Uh, I'm amused that she did voices for Ginger and Marianne on the animated Gilligan's Island. She did voices for Batgirl and Catwoman on Batman. And she did voices for Betty and Veronica. So uh, in some men's eyes, that might just make her the perfect woman.
0: You had me at Ginger and Marianne. See, there
2: you go. There you go. Um, You may be wondering why Majel didn't do this episode. Well, there may be less and less of Majel in the animated series. Um, She missed a few recording sessions since around this time. She would have been very pregnant nearing the end of her pregnancy with her and Gene's son. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Gene Roddenberry had a son. I have no idea what happened to that guy.
0: Oh, God. We should try to get him on the show. That would be awesome
2: <laughs> if he's still around. I don't know.
0: Yeah, we'll put in a call.
2: Yeah, see Maybe. what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh,
0: so I got to say, it's very interesting to me that you're telling me that Kendall said that this was like uh, Mission Impossible. This was also like a and d party. <laughs> right. Like a really, yes. really advanced, like incredibly advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And, right. And it really does. I mean, the Vidalin is like a game master at the beginning because yeah. she's like, yeah, ah, yeah. you're here because um, – because you can do this, and you're here because you do this thing. And Kirk, you're here because you're a great leader, so you'll be following Char. Char <laughs> right, which right makes again. absolutely no sense to me, but right, all right, good times.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very, very much so. You're right. And uh, oh, and by the way, this is kind of a side note, but did M3 Green remind you, as he did me, of a uh, sort of a human-sized water bear? I don't even know what a water bear is. A, a, a tardigrade. It's a... Oh. a um, Oh, well, it's artigrade. I still don't know what you're talking about. It's a tiny, tiny little creature, a microscopic creature that can survive anything. And they have six little arm slash leg things and a kind of bulbous head. And uh, these are creatures that can be exposed to the vacuum of space for days and days and days on end and taken back to Earth atmosphere. And they're fine. Really? They, They survive all of that. Yeah.
0: Now, yeah. do they sometimes have six legs, sometimes have eight?
2: <laughs> well,
0: uh, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, from one minute to the next, because that yeah, was actually something that happened with uh, MC H- M3, huh? It, 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 with the MC M3 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 M3
2: M3 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 M3
0: M3 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 Happened with it, m MC3. Sir, M a couple of times in this uh, um, in this episode,
2: Ken, I like to look at it this way? He, he has exactly the right number of <laughs> legs for whatever the scene may demand.
0: It's like a uh, wizard. He's never later, early. He arrives exactly when he's meant to. Uh uh-huh. Sometimes he's got six legs. Sometimes he's got eight. Not a wizard. Yeah. Although maybe some wizards. I don't know. They're 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 crafty. <laughs> right. Right. You know what I can't help noticing as we come dangerously close to the end of the animated series, there's a <laughs> lot of lava in space in cartoon space, well oh, yeah. well, sometimes there's lava, sometimes there's lava
2: right, oh, yeah, it depends on who you're talking to <laughs> It mm-hmm. does mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, there's just a ton, and I guess that's one of those things that we've talked about, even though the animation's not so great in the filmation stuff. you can do stuff that you couldn't do on t v lava is certainly in the sixties and seventies, not the easiest thing to. Right. I think once we found that special effect, we might have started overusing it a bit in the, in the late <laughs> 90s and early odds. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was one of the first times you could really you know have characters interact with lava
2: yeah, or yeah. interact
0: near it. So for God's sake, let's make a ton of it, shall we? <laughs> right.
2: what, one thing, though, that I was a little disappointed with in this episode is that because animation gives such freedom, once they got into the building where Alara's soul sculpture is mm-hmm. being kept the, the scale was all wrong yeah because they're, they're describing it as being a thousand feet up but it's pretty much looks like they, they just jumped a <laughs> three-foot wall and then they're looking at it at eye level and it,
0: <laughs> when it's they spot just... it from a distance you know they say i i think the soul of alar is there and i'm like yeah. in that circus tent right <laughs> right because right. that's kind of what it looked like both in size and shape both in size and structure yeah yeah yeah
2: and then they got in there and they say, there's a thousand feet up. Well, no, yeah. the the tent is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you could probably throw something and hit it. Yeah, a thousand yeah.
0: feet up. So I'm going to stand on your shoulders. Right. Yeah. And, then we'll, we'll and, we'll we'll, and we there. will actually almost be there. Kind of crazy.
2: Let's talk about something really interesting. Uh, Lara yeah. really came on to Kirk big time twice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. In, in huge ways. Well, three, if you count the whole thing about, you know, when the Vidalin says, you you guys are going to forget this. Yeah. And she's yeah. like, wow, that's too bad. Goodbye, Kirk. You know what I mean? Um, I actually found myself thinking that it's too bad that Bones wasn't there. Because <laughs> that would have just so worked for both of them. I mean, she is as Randy yeah. as he is on his best day. Right. Um, the weird thing was we've never really heard Kirk brag openly about how often he's done it. Mm -hmm. he brags openly about how often he's done it and he's doing it to sort of like you know push Lara off but you know she says hey we should do it and Mm -hmm. she doesn't exactly say that but she practically says that she says it would give them a lot of green memories and Kirk says I have a lot of green
2: memories (laughs) (laughs) he does he does I mean it's it's kind of amazing
0: to me that he's just like he's putting that out there like Mm -hmm. yeah look you know sex is Mm -hmm. cool but it's not like novel for me yeah (laughs) it's pretty much what (laughs) he's saying right um i will say i do like the fact that lara though she's actually reminiscent of dila dila yeah Dila from a wink of an eye Um, yeah yeah she's into kirk in a crazy big way and she has absolutely no problem letting him know that which was you know dila's thing uh now of course kirk actually liked dila Maybe right. it's because there was more time or maybe it's because, you know, she was more to his liking. I don't know. He he never really turns on to Lara. He kind of flirts with her a tiny bit. Like, but even that's like literally talking about the weather.
2: Yeah. <laughs> they they literally do talk about the they weather. They literally talk about the it's, weather. And yeah. for a
0: moment, you're kind of like, oh, maybe Kirk's into her too. No, he was talking about the weather. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, is good because that kept her from talking about where they should sneak off to.
2: That was so interesting. Well, first of all, uh, Dila has the advantage of being three-dimensional.
0: Which, well there.
2: Uh, well, uh, I, I think it's definitely appealing to Kirk. Um and it's interesting that green is now a euphemism. So uh, go out into the world and and use that. And I'm going to make
0: me some green memories. Green memories. And 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 any woman that you're hitting up with that line or any man that you're hitting up with that line is going to be like I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> but it doesn't turn me on the way you apparently think it should.
2: No, no, but, but hey, but if you're a, an animated series Star Trek fan, you will get, yeah, boy, that yes. that'll get you. Um, let's talk about Alar a little bit. He has
0: brain. <laughs> we have to try that in Vegas. <laughs> we Sorry. Do. We, and we ni- do. neither of us can actually follow through on it because of, you know, who we are and how we are.
2: It's, it's a test. Yeah. But, you it's know, a test. if, if yeah. anybody's
0: ears perk up, mm-hmm. then, then you, hook, you hook them up with the other person whose ears perked up and they got a party. Uh huh. And you'll have a story that you can imagine. Stop stop
2: by the table. The secret word is green. Yeah. Let's make Um, some
0: green memories, you and me. What do you say?
2: (laughs) Let's talk about Alar for a moment. Yeah. He uh, he had his brain patterns copied into a big sculpture thing, a computer-ish thing. Ken, I hope that one day you get to fill your dream of having your
0: consciousness stolen to start a war. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't think that's what I would. it's not what I would hope that people would use it for. I actually do like the idea though of. I mean, we've done computer consciousness at this point. I like the idea that these guys actually copied it onto something that was physical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got sort of that wax cylinder feel to it, right? Except, it's like
2: a multi-Mobius strip kind of thing. Yeah, except yeah. hopefully not wax. No, <laughs> no, that's no good. That's
0: no way to store a consciousness. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, just like a hard drive. you got to move that data around. Uh, yes. It, it, because you want to avoid hardware failure. Um, yeah, so remember, when you have your consciousness uploaded have a copy
0: yeah and and having a hard copy might not be the worst thing in the world
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um all right so now we get to get <laughs> serious
0: <laughs> wait that wasn't serious no, all right no, no, go no, ahead yeah. go yeah. on go um
2: on. I, so jihad yeah the, the episode is called the jihad yeah. I, i'm just going to guess that you probably wouldn't name a cartoon show today The jihad. It it is a word that has been kicked around and overused so much more in the 21st century than it ever was Mm -hmm. in the popular culture in the early 70s. It is an Arabic word that means holy war. And my, oh, my, how that word has been used and abused and applied to all kinds of things that don't actually have to do with the holy war. Um, But it is almost kind of like, a, do I dare say, a trigger word? These days, Um, it's uh, it's it's one of these episodes where I sat there and just even from the title, I thought, wow, this is going to be way serious for an audience of eight to 10 year olds, or at least it'll deal with themes and and ideas that go beyond uh, an eight to 10 year old audience. And uh, and there's no way that that it would get made and at least referred to in that same way today.
0: Probably not. Probably not. Now I I will ask you: Do you feel like the themes were addressed, or I don't know? Well, I mean, mean, it's obvious that Char is using religion for his own personal desires. Yeah, I mean, he's twisting the honest faith Mm -hmm. that some people have to uh, you know the dishonest ends of others. And Mm -hmm. you know, thank the Maker or makers that stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. Huh, Joe? No, no,
2: not at all. Yeah,
0: but do you feel like that was actually examined, or is this another one of those things where it's like you know? Yeah, it's a way homer or it's a, it's a, when you're 15 or when you're 20, yeah, you're watching it when you're six or eight years old and it's just like, wow, look at the flying guy and stuff's happening and look at the lizard guy and other stuff's happening. Yeah. And look at all the lava. Um, <laughs> right. right. Do you feel like this episode actually examined the idea in, well, in, a, the, in a big way?
2: Not in a big way, but to me, that's kind of the brilliance of the episode is that if you are a kid watching this, you're watching mission impossible. Mm-hmm. You're watching, highly trained adults doing cool things to save the day. They Mm. got to find the object. They got to save the object. There's a bad guy. We got to defeat the bad guy. And as a story, this is structured, I'll say, in an okay, not a great way, but an okay way to do that, to keep the attention of the audience Mm. who may just be watching it for that.
1: To, and I'm assuming uh, well
2: I'm assuming a, a children's audience who are watching it for that.
0: Yeah. No. But, I, I kind of disagree with you, but go ahead and finish your okay. thing and then and then I'm going to I'm going to eviscerate it. Okay.
2: Okay. But but the very fact that the premise is addressed at, at least twice because you you have Char introducing the idea of here's here's why this is a problem before we know that he's the bad guy Mm -hmm. okay and he addresses the idea and they're like okay well at least in my mind if i'm thinking of kirk subtext here um yeah we want that to not happen and by the way that's crazy (laughs) you know
0: wait say, say a little bit more clearly what you want to not happen because i lost you in a bunch of pronouns there
2: Oh, sorry. So what I'm saying is that even from the beginning, when we learn the motivation of going to find Alar's soul, right? because Char basically lays it out. He says, here's why we have to go find this because this will instigate a holy war.
0: If, and if, if
2: we don't find it. If we don't find it. Right. right. And this is before we know that Char is a bad guy. Right. And Kirk says out loud, like, well, yeah, we have to help you go find the object. But I'm thinking that in Kirk's in the recesses of his mind, he would also be thinking, this is crazy whether we find it or not. Even if we don't find it, your people should not be starting a holy war because a holy war is a bad thing to start. Yeah. Okay? Well. Then you fast forward to the end of the episode and we actually reveal the master plan and we can talk about the merits of that master plan. Um But then I think for an adult audience or or at least an advanced audience, they can pick apart the idea of why you don't allow yourself to get led into battle under a false pretense and with the twisting of an ideological motivation for war.
0: Okay. well, I mean, there are a couple of things I would say. First of all, as crazy as the whole thing might sound to Kirk, I don't think he's going to sit down and reason with the score at that point because it's it's apparently such a hot button issue I mean what you might hope is that eventually they would be cool enough right Mm -hmm. to if the soul of Alar uh, does get lost well yeah you know he was a good guy he had some great ideas kind of like the first Vulcan Mm -hmm. Um, Selick (laughs) (laughs) Surak which you know whichever um, kind of like that. It, it, the thing, the, the thing that I got stuck on, and honestly, watching it the second or third time, I ended up being able to draw more out of it. The first time, it just frustrated me to no end because so mm-hmm. much in this episode does not work. Mm-hmm. I want to see if I can go ahead and try to like draw how this whole thing is 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 laid out. Okay. Okay. Right. The score are angry about the theft of the soul of Ar A-Lar, Right. and right. they are preparing for war. That is stated by the Vidalin, right? Yeah. At the rate that they procreate to produce warriors, they could have 200 billion warriors in two years. And let me just add, that is a lot of angry, angry doing it. Right, (laughs) right. right. The SCORE government is afraid of the gigantic war that will follow, so they are keeping the theft of the soul of ALAR quiet. From whom? Because what we just heard is that the uh, SCORE Mm -hmm. are preparing for war, and yet nobody knows it's stolen. Now- Mm. Mm -hmm. Also, Char has a plan. He's going to steal the soul of Alar. He's going to send people to fetch it. He's going to kill those people, thus ending any possibility of saving the soul of Alar, thus causing the gigantic war the government is trying to avert. Once he tells them that the soul of Alar is stolen, because remember, we're keeping that a secret, right? Now, Mm -hmm. four parties have gone after it, all led apparently by Char. So why not just steal it and not send anybody to fetch it and then tell the scores of people of score? That, you know, it's gone and, you know, get them started on their hot, angry procreations, <laughs> <laughs> And then you have your war that you're looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. this is needlessly this is needlessly complex. In fact, it does not work the way he's trying to set it up. And then, you know, the payoff at the end of the episode is, by the way, nobody is ever going to know about this. And soon neither will you. Even even, yeah. even Char is going to have his memory erased. I mean, I, I think Dr. Tristan Adams is going to be called out of retirement just to do a little <laughs> right. bit of work here because what she says is, oh, no, he's a proud man. He's a yeah. proud and valiant man. And, uh, and, and, and we're going to keep that part of him. But this, uh, this other part about taking over the galaxy, nah, we're just going to <laughs> wipe that out. If anybody has got a chair that we can put him in and in a big light show that we can show him.
2: <laughs> right. All right.
0: that stuff, we're just going to pull right out of there. Um, I, I, find this, I find this episode frustratingly incomprehensible in the way it's structured.
2: I, I don't think it's incomprehensible. I think it's
0: overcomplicated, like like It said. doesn't work.
2: It, it,
0: it, 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 it only it, works yeah. if you're also a sick psychopath in addition to wanting to start a war. It's like, well, <laughs> I want to start a war, but you know what I'd really rather do first is kill like 16 to 25 people and just you know kind of have fun leading them through this crazy obstacle course at the right. end of which I'm going to kill them. I mean, yeah, he, it, he doesn't need
2: witnesses,
0: right? For anything. In fact, he needs to not have witnesses to anything, right? And yet right. he keeps bringing them. And by the way, the Vidalins are supposed to like know everything, but they don't pick up on this, <laughs> right? Really, right. Char? Another party? How is it that you <laughs> keep coming out of this, and how is it that nobody else does? And how is it that your people are preparing for war if they don't know this is happening? And the other thing is, if they actually are preparing for war, is this really going to cool them down now? Are they going to be? Are they going to? And do they have already like a quarter of a billion warriors? That, right, right. Because you know. Anyway, and, and what do
2: you do with all those people? You you got to feed them. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you, you got all this stuff you have to do, and, yeah.
0: and there's no war to go to. Start a peace corps. That's that's what you got to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Populate some other planets, maybe.
2: Very very big peace corps, yeah. Because I, I I do agree with you. You know the the plan has got problems. I, <laughs> I, I agree, the, the plan the plan has got problems. But yeah. it's okay. They they start the war first of all where and
0: and when and with whom. Well, it's a galactic and, war. He does say yeah. that it's They're a, it's a gonna war go on the all out galaxy, and that They're part that fight. part makes sense. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about you know jihad and not being a very you know um, not as common a concept. Yeah. Uh, at the time that this came out, uh, this was also the premise of Dune. Mm, this mm-hmm. was how Paul Atreides ended up taking over the entire the known galaxy, right, and becoming yeah. uh, emperor of of the known universe or whatever whatever yeah. it was he was the Padishah Emperor, what have you. Um, he led the Fremen on jihad, and how yeah, he did that was like by saying, "You know what? You guys have been mistreated long enough. We can make this planet exactly what you want it to be. We are going to have to take over everything else to do it." <laughs> yeah, right, right. But let's go ahead and do that. I mean, and and I do believe that they actually called it Jihad in Dune as well. So, oh, I mean, wow. it, this is not a completely unknown idea, especially to science fiction fans. Yeah. Um, at that time. And, well, and, of course, people from other cultures, but probably Star Trek wasn't playing Saturday morning in those cultures. Right, right.
2: Well, yeah. it is an interesting thing. I kept thinking, what happens when the rest of the, the score find out that um, – that they're fighting under a false pretense. You Mm -hmm. know, what happens when they actually find this thing? Because eventually, if you're just going from planet to planet, you you would think that somewhere, somehow, with all these billions of people, they would find this thing eventually. And they're going to say, well, wait, who put it here and why? And then if it was one of our own people, you know, did did the score leave fingerprints when they're building a a giant building to house a uh, soul-catching sculpture? It, it, it raises a lot of questions. Um, well,
0: they're about to go on the Crusades, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, they really are about to go on the Crusades. I cannot imagine that Alar would have cared that the you know, physical representation of his soul was stolen because I can't think – it, it's hard for me to imagine that his teachings throughout his life were, so one day I'm going to be a ceramic Mobius strip, right? And you're going to want to protect that, and that's what's going to keep us from you know, being crazy warrior race anymore. I mean, probably his teachings were actually about, let's not be crazy warrior race anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's very much the Crusades, though. I mean, Jesus was not like, okay, so so uh, uh, this is my blood, so drink of this cup, and then really seriously protect this cup, and if anybody ever steals it, you you kill them. You just kill you, them. You go yes. kill <laughs> right. them. You take right. armies and just uh, and yeah. this land actually is holy as well. Okay, so if anybody like is not cool here, you kill them. <laughs> right. I, right. I, I doubt that Alar was the guy. You know that, that, that yeah. who would say, "Oh no, 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 wait that's that's the physical representation of my soul, yeah, no, go get that, yeah, 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 yeah. no matter what I mean, it's yeah. again, it's the twisting of uh it's what we talked about earlier, it's the twisting of um honest faith, mm-hmm. honest belief into something that really has nothing to do with what that faith or belief was originally based on,
2: sure, well and Star Trek has done it a few times where we condemn blind faith or, or overzealousness. And you could look at this as kind of like a, a strange blind patriotism. It's like we, we get our order to go have this war. Mm. So we're going to go have this war because that's what we
0: do. Well, and, blind, blind patriotism. The thing is that I, I'm actually willing to cut most of the people of score a bit of slack, though. They're, mm. they're being misled.
2: They are. They are. Yeah. Right. So I don't but, think but, I don't
0: think this is about blind faith, at least not at least not in an ideology or a philosophy or a religion even. I think it's about blind faith in a leader of that. It's about yeah. somebody – I mean, this is, this, is, this is wearing certain symbols on your lapel. This is you know wearing certain symbols on a chain around your neck. And because you're wearing that symbol on the chain around your neck, then everything you say must be good because, look, you look like somebody who wears that thing. Right, so, I'm so, part of
2: the club. Yeah. Right,
0: so you must be that thing. So I'm going to go ahead and listen to you. Yeah. I'm not going to listen to what you're saying. I'm going yeah. to listen to you. I wouldn't say that it's blind faith in a in a in a philosophy or in an idea. I would say it's following people who say that they represent that idea for no better reason than they say they represent that idea. Right. And we get well, that a lot. We get that so much today that it's uh it's honestly a little sickening.
2: Indeed. Well, and one would hope that among their billions some of the score would have a chance to question it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think though that as much as um we can pick apart char's motivations and and the, <laughs> the 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 faults with his plan he's in an interesting place for a character he, he isn't able to conceive of his own usefulness outside of the context of war and conquest So you have to wonder what life is like on his planet if all of his species are like this, or at least he's representing a a portion of his species, Um, or if it's just him taking this attitude to an extreme. You could almost expect a Kirk speech here about redirecting his energies into something more constructive, something about making the galaxy a better place. Um, It's not like there is no longer a threat of violence from somewhere, but... At the end of this episode, he's say, no, we're going we're gonna to wipe his memory. <laughs> we're just yeah. going to wipe out that portion of him. But I think in a more complex story, in, in a movie or something like that, you, get to, you do get to explore the idea of the, the aging general, the, the aging warrior who no longer has a place and has to figure out what to do with his life and well, his energies and his passions.
0: You don't actually need a movie to do that, though. I mean, we mm-hmm. did that with Coniclius V. No. Yeah, true. He was I mean, he was going to set up this police force to go out and govern the galaxy. And then he finds out that the galaxy is a peaceful place. (laughs) And he has a little he has a moment of, you know, well, so there's no purpose for me. And 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 gigantic Spock turns to gigantic caniclius and says, why don't we help these people? I mean, so, I mean, you don't actually need something as big as a movie to do that. Um, you apparently need something a little bigger than what's available in this episode. The other thing, though, is, I mean, uh, Char is crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he is insane. I mean, that's that's, that's that's part of what's going on here. I mean, he's not... I, I don't believe he's playing with a full deck. He is a prince who is bombed that, you know, being a prince used to be, you know, about going out and destroying people, and he wants to go back to those, you know, those happy times when they were <laughs> yeah. a giant warrior cast that was taking everything over.
2: Well, he's crazy, but he's crazy with a position of power, and presumably he has
0: followers who would be perfectly okay with his level of crazy. Well, this again goes back to you know the fact that he's going to use the the prop of religion Mm -hmm. to to uh, to affect his end.
2: Yeah. Well, I think we've kind of hammered the thing about the jihad. Uh, I think Ken, <laughs> Ken, you and I will uh, will both come down on the uh, probably not controversial statement that jihad's are bad things. Um, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, and, and I would say that he, he, even in this case, it's not just because fighting slash wars are bad things, but this is really about to do with the motivation, this the single minded ideological reasoning for. Yeah. A war. Um, and that's heavy stuff for an eight-year-old to grapple with on a Saturday morning.
0: Um, yeah. But again, I don't know. I mean, we get to examine it because we're, we're not eight. Yeah. I mean, A lot I, of eight-year-olds, like you said, we're watching yeah. an episode of Mission Impossible. Yeah. Except yeah. in space. I will say one, one other uh, lesson that's maybe a bit more accessible to eight-year-olds, mm-hmm. um, there's value in diversity. Uh, mm-hmm. How we did not get an idiot even mentioned <laughs> in no here way. is unknown to me because yeah. cause we're putting it there like Lara's got her sense of direction and Spock's got his logic and Kirk's got his leadership and adaptability Sword um, is surly really great by the way you <laughs> right. did I can't believe you didn't mention this it's uh, it's totally Billy Bob Thornton doing his voice ah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I like it here on this planet mm-hmm. I mean it's you know, him the whole time you got the wormy uh, coward's ability to pick locks right um, yeah. this is actually a decent message yeah yeah um, it would have been nice to see it in a, you know, sensible plot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you, you do have a lot of people helping each other in this one. Uh, total strangers from all walks of life. Yeah. Um, and, and not only are they helping each other, they're stopping to help the weakest link. Yeah. And and have a respect for individual talents. Well, there's no,
0: there's no such thing as a weak link in this, though. I mean, yeah, I right, mean right. they would not have been able to get into the sort of suggestive looking door without um without MC dude the, being able to, the
2: M C five, yeah. Pick the
0: locks with his, you know, six to eight arms. Um yeah. there's one point actually where Spock falls down mm-hmm. and 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 he says, Leave me and yeah. and Kirk says, well no. Because, I mean, look at me, I'm Kirk and you're Spock. (laughs) There's no way I'm leaving here without you. So he goes back to pick him up and Spock's like, well, I appreciate that. But, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And he didn't say it in those terms, but it's something that we've heard Spock say before. And we'll hear him codify it, you know, and actually a very few episodes of Mission Log. Right. Um, Kirk actually argues with him, though, and says, well, no, I, I, I was looking out for the many because we need you. And plus Starfleet needs its best science officer. Yeah. So, so don't tell me <laughs> it was, I mean, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of interesting to see that, uh, that yeah. idea explored as well. I wouldn't say it was a lesson necessarily, but it was interesting to see that idea that comes up more than I ever realized in Star Trek.
2: Um, plus, plus it was way too minor of an incident to have the leave me behind speech.
0: Yeah, well, uh, uh, lava is is really weird. Lava is almost mercurial <laughs> in this episode. It, <laughs> right, it almost right. gets them, and then it's nowhere near them, and then it's almost going to get them again, and then it doesn't. Uh, Spock, <laughs> by the way, lieutenant, obvious in this commercial. I mean, in this commercial, in this uh, in this episode, <laughs> so when yeah. he's you know, the lava starts to hit them, and he's like, "Well, volcanic activity is to be expected." Yeah, largely because there are like nine volcanoes going off around them. <laughs> right, right. I, I would say it would not be surprising at that point, yes. Yeah, not so, at all. So Thank you very much, sir.
2: Ken, how do we feel about these episodes? Did we like them?
0: I did not like the second one. I don't know if you could hmm. tell. I think there was yeah, a tremendous yeah. amount of stuff to pull out of it. I think there were lots of really interesting ideas that you can explore in it, but I was just too taken with how it didn't work. Once we find out that Char is the guy who is the bad guy, but mm-hmm. Char is also the person who has set this whole thing up, and we know that his people are preparing for war, except they're not because the whole thing's a secret. I'm willing to cut cartoons a lot of slack, but I think – and honestly, if this had been like the first one, I might have liked it more. But the thing is mm-hmm. we actually came into Star Trek the Animated Series with this with this new-to-us revelation that these are actually episodes of Star Trek. yeah. And so this was a dumb episode of Star Trek, a lot of great ideas in it, a lot of interesting ideas in it, but predicated on, I mean, just you really have to not think at all about how this whole thing works. Because if you think about it for more than 10 seconds, you're going to realize there is absolutely no level on which this works. It felt like a monumental waste of time, honestly. That's and that's that's as harsh as I've been about any episode of the cartoon to this point. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I I didn't really like it that much. How about you?
2: Well, here's <laughs> the thing. I, I felt like I of the beholder, <laughs> um it, it wasn't a bad episode. I, I just thought it was all too familiar for star trek yeah. i was waiting for the new twist something new about it to make me just not immediately think of the cage or um devil in the dark or even core maneuver just yeah you know all the kind of great episodes that have come before it i don't mind if you're going to put characters in a similar situation but just give me something a little bit newer a little bit different um I thought it was interesting that they could design a whole new environment and new uh, aliens for them to grapple with. So that was kind of cool. I I didn't dislike the Jihad nearly as much as you did because I could kind of hold those two ideas in my head separately. That here's the fun action-adventure story for the eight-year-olds who are watching characters do cool things – And then at least we introduce the idea, you know, (laughs) thinking you you go to a class on Monday morning after you've watched Star Trek on a Saturday and go, okay, third graders, let's talk about what does jihad mean, (laughs) you know? So I I thought at at the very least I give them credit for introducing the idea Mm -hmm. and introducing the idea of what are the motivations That would make people go to war. What are the ideological underpinnings that would make people act out in uh, what would clearly be an inappropriate and destructive way. So I give him credit for that. But yes, I agree with you. Once you pick it apart for a moment, uh, the the plan is no good.
0: Yeah, it's like a it's like a house of cards.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It undermines the, the story. And that is unfortunate.
0: I will say really quickly, um, because I, I sort of jumped straight to the jihad. I have the beholder. I'm actually willing to forgive a little bit more than you, because if you mm. bear in mind, this is what 1970, I guess it would be the first week of 1974 when that. Correct. Yeah. When that aired. Star Trek had been off the air for a while. It might have been on in reruns, but people mm. wouldn't have quite as much access to it. Like they wouldn't have nearly as much access to it as they have today. Yeah. They wouldn't have even had the time to study Star Trek that you have taken in your life to study Star Trek. Right. And you're dealing with a bunch of six to eight year olds as well. Six to eight, not sixty-eight year olds. So I mean <laughs> this is gonna be this is going to be new to a lot of kids, certainly. Yeah. And a lot of people watching it because they didn't have you know, you couldn't just go to Netflix or your computer or your DVDs or your Blu rays or your VHS copies. I mean, yeah. you know. There were some people who I know from talking to a lot of people who who watched every episode they possibly could, no matter what time it was on, no matter where it was on. But there were a lot of people who didn't. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. while they weren't new ideas, especially to somebody who studied it as much as you and, and you, as much as you have and as much as I'm starting to, mm. um, it would have been newer to a lot yeah. of people um, just based on the fact that they didn't have nearly the access to it that we have today.
2: Very true. Well, the good news, as always, Ken, is there is more Star Trek to come next week. We go headlong into season two of the animated series with the Pirates of Orion and them.
1: Music for Mission Log provided by Big Gargan Trio. Find their self-titled album on iTunes. Additional music provided by Warp 11. Online at Warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at K-I-Theory.com.
0: Another interesting bit of trivia about Glenn Glenn's sound. They actually did the... uh you see, I can't make it work. Never mind. Oh, okay. It was going to be a Glengarry Glenn Ross, Glenglenn Glenn something. <laughs> My- <laughs> and and really, what a marvelous feat that was, because if you've seen the theatrical release of uh-huh. Glengarry <laughs> Glenn Ross, there <laughs> like, would have to be a lot of editing to do it on television. So, yeah, there, so would be, there would be. The Glen Glengarry Glenn, Glen Ross cut <laughs> is really phenomenal.
1: And Transmission.